Amen. Amen. Well, back in uh, 2017, many of you know the story, uh, the senior pastor I was under and serving fell into sin, got caught, and in the process manipulated a bunch of people who got fired and laid off, myself included. So we were without a job in Southern California, and so uh, uh, it's very expensive there. I don't know if you knew that or not, and Dallas area is getting to be about the same. Um, And so uh, right away, we planted a church. We felt in our heart that God wanted us to plant a church. Now, when God calls you to do something, it's our jobs as believers to obey. Sometimes our obedience is very easy. Oh, give that person a call, pray for them. No problem. But when God called me to plant a church, my level of obedience and sacrifice was that we used our own money to start the church. We're talking $30,000 to pay for the first couple months of my salary, to pay all the legal aspects of the 501c3 and getting the nonprofit up and going, and just all the resources, all the things that we needed to really start a church in a week's time. And it was wonderful, but as a couple months went by, now I knew, okay, the church is is up and going, and we got all the structure in place, but now I need to look for a day job, because bills keep coming around every month or so. I don't know if you knew that or not, but bills keep on coming. And so I said, I need to get a a day job, and so I wanted something very simple. I didn't want a manager job. I didn't want a job that took too much of my brain space. I wanted a very, very simple job where I could have headphones in and do the same thing every day, the same way, you know, just as you don't have to think about it. So I went and got a job. Uh, a friend of mine was a manager at a uniform factory, a uniform warehouse. And he says, you could just do the same thing. You'll be, you know, rolling mats or you'll be putting uniforms through the steamer. Just the same thing, repetitive all day long. I said, perfect. That's what I need. Well, the problem was this job, it, it, it made me do the work of three full-time people because they couldn't hold on to employees. The demand and the stress and the pace in which you had to work was too much. So there I was my first week, and not only did I have to sort all of the uniforms and scan them with this barcode and then take them and put them on this train track that brought them upstairs to get loaded for uh, the, the trucks to be loaded on there, but I also had to fix any ones that were out of alignment, go track them down, and that conveyor belt keeps on coming. It's kind of like that episode, that old school episode of I Love Lucy with the chocolates. Remember that? Just imagine poor Bastard Rudy over there trying to figure everything out. And I was running up and down stairs and going so fast and so hard that I even pulled a ligament in my calf muscle. I was limping and had to go to physical therapy, and they worked on it. That was one of the most painful things I've ever done. I only lasted a month at that job. I said, this is supposed to be entry level, simple, and it was killing me. I mean, even as a grouch, I mean, my, my wife looked at me and said, you're not the husband I married. I quit the next day. I said, I'm done with this. Then I found a position at a wonderful little company. It's about 60,000 square feet and about 120 employees, and they work to build circuit boards and machinery for medical devices and physical therapy. My job was to be the first ever janitor maintenance man. So all I had to do every day was walk around and fix little things that were broken or you know, clean up little things and service the bathrooms. I could keep headphones in, in at all times and listen to whatever I wanted, and I was in charge of creating my own schedule. And it was wonderful. I worked nine hours a day. So for nine hours, in my ears, I had sermons, audio Bible, audio books, conferences, any good thing that YouTube could let me listen to, I was listening to all day long. It's like I was back in seminary, but even better. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm mopping a floor or changing out a light bulb just crying because I'm in the glory of God. And, you know, all these 120 employees are looking at this weird Mexican guy like, what's wrong with him? Poor soul. <laughs> you know? 
Uh, I mean, writing sermons was so easy. I mean, because just, how, can you imagine? I could listen to the entire Bible cover to cover in two weeks just by listening to it before lunchtime every day. It was incredible how much I was getting and how much joy I had for 18 months to be able to run a, a church from the ground up and work a full-time job nine hours a day and have joy. Now, the funny thing was, in the second job, I was actually doing way more physically. On my iPhone, I was able to clock, you know, how much steps I had in the day and so forth. I was walking an average of 12 and a half miles a day and climbing 40 flights of stairs. Now, everybody tells me, wow, you must have been in shape. Nope. <laughs> a little bag of Doritos is 350 calories. So even if I was uh, burning 2,000 calories a day and walking, I was eating way more. Let me tell you that much. So. But I was doing so much more physically but why was I more alive? The only difference was that in the first job, it was chaos and stress, whereas in the, the next job, I was receiving nonstop. And I know that the, the difference between our breakthrough and staying in bondage is our level of receiving. The level in which you can receive greatly determines your breakthrough and your victory. We have to learn how to receive. We, we need to learn how to stay strong in the Lord. And that, that includes magnifying him, worshiping him, making him the focus, and constantly receiving from heaven. And so today, the message that God put on my heart is, is the title is Finding Strength. Finding Strength. I believe that as believers, we need to continue to have a backbone in the church and to have strength in the Lord so that we can release his love and his power to the world around us. And it just amazes me how much we still need strength. I've been in ministry for only 20 years, but I still on a daily basis have to pray and discipline myself to be able to walk in his strength. We can be so fickle and so frail as believers, even though we have so much. I mean, we are the most educated and the most informed generation in history. I mean, we get more information in a single day than our ancestors got in their entire lifetimes. We have supercomputers in our pockets and purses called iPhones. That we have access to anything. The scholar Google will answer any question that we ask it. We have so much, and yet with all of this, we are still in a place of desperation. Divorce is still at an all-time high. Discouragement, depression is still at an all-time high. The church seems to be getting quieter and quieter because God's people need more and more strength to be able to accomplish that which he calls us to. And so today I want to look at finding strength, finding strength. And I think we're going to be surprised because I have discovered that finding strength really has nothing to do with seeking strength. Finding strength, I'm going to give you the answer to the, the whole main theme of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you at the very beginning instead of the end. Here it is, the key to finding strength. Oh, it's so powerful. Oh, it, it's so smart. The key to finding strength it's never losing it. It's never losing it in the first place. Because see, God gives us fully everything from day one as being a Christian. When you said, Jesus, I, I accept you as Savior. I believe you died and rose from the grave. And I believe I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I give my life to you. When you pray that and become a Christian, at day one, God gives you every resource of heaven. He completely trans transforms your identity. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have authority in Christ. The enemy has been defeated. He has no more power over you. In an instant, you have And that's why faith is not only a gift of God, but it's a fruit of God as well. 
It's a gift because he gives us everything in the moment, but it's a fruit because we have to work out our own salvation. And though he has given us everything, we can still live in a way in which he has given us nothing if we don't strengthen ourselves in the Lord, if we don't go after these wonderful things. And so we can't lose what God has already given to us. Now, I'm going to speak to all the parents in the room right now because many of us have this issue that goes on all the time with our children and where they misplace stuff. And it's getting harder. I, I still am the old guy who just wishes we had a headphone jack in our phones. Remember, now you have to have these special adapters and everything. Everything's going to Bluetooth. My son has these AirPods, you know, those tiny little things that look like your ears are leaking, you know, those things in the ears. And he's always losing them, always losing them. I mean, typically my puppy will find them and they'll be in her mouth and she'll, oh, there it is. And she's crunching on them, always losing them. And my wife says what every teenager doesn't want to hear. Isn't that like moms to say the thing you don't want to hear and to say it in the wrong moment, but it's definitely what you need to hear? And she'll say this. She'll go, if you just put them in the same place every time you're done with them, you would never lose them, right? (laughs) So God has given us the fruit of the Spirit. Love and peace and joy and strength and all these wonderful things. He has fully given us everything, but we're not going back to the same place. We're losing our strength. God has fully given us everything that we need, and we need to realize this and refresh ourselves and repent of of wrong ways so that we can come back to the truth of all that he has given to us, and then now we can start flowing in those things. And so as I thought about and prayed about and studied about strength, God immediately brought me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. So if you have a Bible, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we're going to look at the first eight verses or so. And if you uh, are turning on your Bible, you can type in the uh, 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, in the New American Standard 1995 edition. I will always preach that way because that's how Jesus wrote the Bible, in the New American Standard. It's my absolute favorite. I had a friend um, where he knew that I read the New American all the time, and he finally bought one, and he ended up selling that Bible. I'm like, why'd you get rid of it? It's, all, it's too literal. It sounds like, like uh, Yoda's reading you the Bible. It sounds all backwards. I'm like, well, it's, it's a, a full-on literal translation, and I love that because I love piecing apart the words of the Bible, and that's why it's my favorite. But uh, you may know this story. This is King David. He's been being chased by evil Saul, trying to kill him for 20 years. He's been hiding out in caves. He's been killing giants and fighting battle after battle after battle. He finally creates a city uh, that was given to him, even by the enemies, called Ziklag. And Pastor Wally talked about his Ziklag and his home, his, his place of refuge that he has to go and be with the Lord. Well, David had a whole city for his family, for a place for him to have rest, and for his rejects of society that he turned into mighty men. So he's at Ziklag, and, and one day he's coming back from war, and one of the worst things that could ever happen happens. So let's pick up in verse 1. It says, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and in Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. I mean, can you imagine coming home from work, pulling up on the driveway, and your whole house is burned to the ground, and the police officers are there and said, hey, when we came here, nobody was here. We have no idea where your, your spouses or your children are at. 
as the, the most horrific scene that anybody can show up to. Then David and the people, verse 4, David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. I mean, we've been there in our lives where we have cried until the point where we've had no more tears to cry. Verse 5, now David and his two wives have been taken captive, and Ohim and the Jezreelites and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because his sons and his daughters But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest and the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod. Why do they give these people these big old names, man? I'm just, whoo, I'm just going to, you know, the secret really, if if you you really want to say Greek and Hebrew words in the Bible or these funny names, just do it with a Mexican accent and people will think you're speaking Greek. I do it all the time. It's hilarious. (laughs) You don't have to know how to fully say the words in the Bible. You just have to say it with confidence, and people will believe you. I'm like, wow, he's so versed in the Bible. <laughs> no, I'm guessing. <laughs> so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this man? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Oh, I love this so much. David, who was and he was distressed. He was, he was weeping to where he had no more tears to cry. And in the middle of all that, he somehow finds it in himself, in the middle of his storm, to strengthen himself and the Lord his God. Now, strengthen in the Hebrew here is such a fantastic word because it strengthen in this portion, it means to be possessed with strength and to grow in strength. Those two completely opposite definitions in one word. And exactly as I said, faith is both a gift and a fruit. It's something that you possess, but it's something you also have to work out. And so David strengthened himself. So he recognized, I have strength in the Lord my God, because never will he leave me. Never will he forsake me. No weapon formed against me will prosper. God is on my side. So I have strength, but right now I'm not experiencing strength. So I need to grow in that. So I love the word and how he strengthened himself. Now, this is one of those moments in the Bible where they tell you basically, don't do this or do this. And they tell you no clue how to do it. They give no application, no steps, you know, the seven secrets of how David strengthened himself in the Lord. None of that. And I believe that if, if we saw exactly how David strengthened himself in the Lord, all we would do is try to copy it do exactly as he did, the same way every time. And I think that our circumstances and our situations and our hurts and our pains in life, they're so unique, not only to the individual, but also to the circumstance that we need to go fresh to God each and every time, saying, strengthen me in your love, O Lord. Strengthen me in your power. Strengthen me in, in the spirit so that I can accomplish what you have called me to. Because I'm, con- I'm convinced that God will never lead you to something that he hasn't already given you the victory. And I know this because you'll look at at the Hebrews who were in bondage and God was leading them through the Red Sea to the promised land, but he didn't take them on a quick 11-day walk on the coast. That would have been a beautiful walk. 11 days it only took to get to, uh, to Egypt, to the land of Canaan, the promised land. But God didn't bring them that way. He led them through the wilderness and all that hardship because if they went the coastal route, there were giants there. And they had been slaves for so long and they still weren't done with their slave mentality. And if you're not done with your slave mentality, you'll find your breakthrough, step into victory, be so afraid of victory, you'll self-sabotage yourself back to your bondage. Some Christians don't know what to do with victory. 
Some Christians have no idea when they finally get the answer to the prayer, they're, they're so busy struggling and striving that they have no idea what to do with their victory. Do you have vision for your victory? Do you have vision for after when God answers your prayer? This is a whole nother story. It just begins. It's not finally over. No, it's just starting when he leads you to victory. But God wouldn't lead them through the coastal route because they would see the giants. They wouldn't be prepared for it and they would run right back to bondage. So he took them into the wilderness to work with them. But if you're in a situation today, in a painful situation today, take heart because God trusts you and he's put you to go through that situation. So know your victory is coming. But right now, it's not our job to have far away vision. It's our, our job to open our eyes to what's around us and to let God use us in and through what's currently happening. So David strengthened himself in the Lord. And it doesn't tell us how, but at least we can look at a few things that David did that will help us to strengthen ourselves. And so in your notes, if you want to take some notes here, the first one is that David made an investment. David made an investment. He invested in himself. He invested in his people. He invested in his faith, in his warfare. He was constantly being teachable and growing. And he took the time to get away and to worship and to pour out his heart and emotions and write the Psalms. In Mark 6, 31, Jesus tells his disciples, come away with me for a while and rest. I, I saw a t-shirt today um, and it said, uh, Jesus took naps. And it says, I'm just trying to be Christ-like. <laughs> and it's true. How many times in the Bible did Jesus take a nap or eat some food or Elijah who was suicidal and depressed and the Lord brought him food and made him sleep two more times? He said, take two more naps and get a snack and you're going to feel a whole lot better. Naps are biblical, people. <laughs> but investment in rest, it's amazing what a good night's sleep actually does to the soul. It's the hardest thing for me to discipline myself in, but the biggest thing necessary for a great mood. Then in Exodus 18, 18, we see that um, Moses was from sunup to sundown constantly dealing with everybody's drama. They were on finally through the Red Sea and in the wilderness, and he's sitting there with the little table. I can just imagine it. And this long line of angry people saying, well, this person did this. And he, he's like Judge Judy, and he's just trying to solve everybody's problem. And his father-in-law, father -in -law, Jethro, he goes, he, is that a napkin? Thank you so much. Oh, man, I tell you what, the, the perils of a chubby man. You know, always sweating. It's not because I'm nervous. It's because I'm excited. But, you know, it gets spicy in here. <laughs> and so uh, Moses is there at the table dealing with everybody's troubles all day long. And Jethro comes up to him and says, this is not good. Brother, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself doing this. He's like, no, train up other people. Invest in other people so that you don't have to carry the burden all by yourself. We got to go to our trials prepared. You know, don't, don't, don't expect that, that life's never going to have storms. It's going to have storms. But are you prepared? Are you fasted up? Are, are you prayed up? Are you going in with the armor of God? I mean, imagine a firefighter who shows up to a fire and doesn't have his suit, his helmet, his axe, his fire hose. They'd be like, you're a firefighter? You showed up to this thing with nothing. I mean, how many, how many believers show up to the fight without wearing our armor? We got to be prepared. We got to be the people who, who, when there is a problem, like, well, where are the Christians? Where are the believers? They always have the answer. They always know what to do. People should be looking to us who get revelation from the creator of the universe, access to the creator of the universe to bring solutions instead of just being looked at as a bunch of hypocrites who sin and who fall short and all this other stuff that we're looking for. No, we got to have the answer. So it's like a firefighter who goes in. They, they, their identity is to go in and take care of the fire. 
In fact, I saw a real-life firefighter, I'm not kidding you, a real-life firefighter whose name was Sergeant Les McBurney. Les McBurney. Can you imagine? Like you're a firefighter and your name means I'm basically putting fires out. Well, we bear the mark of Jesus Christ. Our identity is that we are sons and daughters of the Father of heaven. And that when there is a storm, we should be the ones that are going in and bringing a solution. But the problem is we're creatures of habit and we're also on this side of eternity, meaning we deal with human, worldly, fleshly stuff. Now, here's a challenge. Is your routine your religion? Are you so fixated on your morning routine, your weekly routine of how you have devotions with God, of how you read the Bible, of how you pray, how you commune with God, that you will definitely not do anything else outside of that? I remember a worship leader one time, and he said, I'm, I sing and I lead worship all the time. And he goes, but sometimes God doesn't want to connect with me through the guitar. Sometimes I need to read. Sometimes I need to just be silent. Sometimes I need to go into a season of being an intercessor. Now, I'm a preacher. I love to read. I love to study. I love to talk. I don't know how to play an instrument. But I'm telling you, this past season, God has spoken more through me in worship than through any book. I can't remember the last book I read other than the Bible in the last couple months. But I'll listen to a song, my poor family, because I listen to the same song over and over and over and over. Then I sing it over and over and over as I'm washing dishes or whatever. I mean, my poor son, as I'm taking him to school, and the, the radio doesn't have to be on. I'm singing like crazy. And he's just in there looking out the window like, will he ever stop? I've heard this song a million times because there's something in the song when it says he is faithful. Something burns and comes alive inside of me. I'm like, God, you have been so faithful. How many times in the last three years have we been homeless or been in a motel room or, or switched churches and, and you have been faithful? We have never been without in this entire time. And then he speaks to me a word about faithfulness. So are you a slave to your routine? Is your routine your religion? Because every practice and every discipline in Christianity should be an avenue to the manifest presence of God. It should be an end of itself. You should be in love with the art of prayer. You should be in love with the one you're praying to. And some of us have become so in love with our routine and our prayer and our study methods and our little small groups that we start worshiping those things and not the one we should be worshiping. So maybe you are a reader or maybe you are a singer, but I challenge you to step outside of yourself and invest like David did. Invest to where you know I am fully in the presence of God. David made an investment. The second thing he did was that David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. How dare we try to make a decision or go anywhere without first consulting the creator of the universe? We got to go before him. Prayer should not be a last resort. It should be a first priority. One of the phrases I can't stand in the church is when somebody will say, well, all we can do is pray. Excuse me? <laughs> I feel like Jesus when they said, if you can heal me, and Jesus says, excuse me, if? <laughs> I'm the Messiah. Like, I, I feel like when people say that, like, all we can do is pray. No, if all you can do is pray, that means you tried everything in your own human will first, and it didn't work, and so now you're praying. You got to flip that around. You got to start with prayer and then let the Lord guide you in all your human will and your free will and, and your effort and your mindset and your intelligence and all that. Partner with God. Don't ever go about it alone. He will save you from so much hurt if you just go to him first. Remember in a um, uh, mission trip I took in Nicaragua one time, uh, we went with our Spanish pastor and in Nicaragua and Costa Rica, if you're not familiar, they eat the same 
thing at every single meal, every single day. It's white rice with cilantro and black beans in the morning with a little bit of egg. Then it's white rice and black beans with a little bit of chicken for lunch. I mean, a little bit, like the size of your pinky. Then at night, it's rice and beans and a tiny bit of beef. I mean, a tiny bit every single day. And for two weeks, we're touring both countries and preaching at churches, and I'm eating the same thing every single day. And then one day, the, the Spanish pastor, he brings us to San Juan, um, Costa Rica, the capital, and he pulls into a McDonald's parking lot. I said, don't play with me. Don't you play with my emotions. Are we going to McDonald's right now? I bought two double quarter pounders with cheese. Oh, it was the best cheeseburger I've ever had in my life. It was so great. But um, after that, the next day, we went up a big mountain, and it was really cold in that area of Costa Rica. And as we were pulling into this little church, uh, the, the senior pastor says, look, I know you've had rice and beans every single day, every single meal, but you need to understand something. This church that we're going to go into is extremely poor. They're going to give you a meal, but that meal is their meal. That's what they should have had for, for lunch and for dinner, and they're going to give it to you. And you need to accept it so that you don't offend them and rob them of the blessing of what they want to give to you. Let me just tell you, that was the best bowl of rice and beans I've ever had in my life. Every single grain I took with gratitude and profusely thanked them. And if he didn't give us that little bit of information, I could have done a horrific thing to that little church and left a mark on them of, wow, these Americans came and they were so ungrateful and he prevented us from doing that. And when we face trials and tribulations of all kinds in life, how dare we not inquire of the Lord and not seek his counsel first, a first priority. The steering wheel of our life should be prayer. And I love how David, he cried. He let it all out. He was in distress. He went through all the emotions, but then he stopped in the middle of his, of his drama, in the middle of his problem. And he says, God, what do you say? Oof. So simple, yet so powerful. He inquired, and then he said, God, do you want me to go after my family? God, should I go and pursue these enemies? And God gave him the green light. And that's why David was able to go up to his mighty men who wanted to kill him. David brought these rejects of society, trained them up to be giant killers. There were four other giants in the Bible, Goliath's brothers. They were all killed by David's men. You want to kill giants? Hang out with giant killers. They impart on you. And so he, he's like, look what I turned you into, and you want to kill me? He had every right to be upset, and he didn't. Instead, he inquired of God. He got the group. He built his confidence up. He strengthened himself, slapped his men, and said, keep it together, fellas. Let's go get our ladies. That's exactly what they did. They went. They got their family. They plundered the enemy. So not only did they recover all, but they came back with double for their trouble because he inquired of the Lord first. How dare we try to make a decision alone when we are called children of God, the creator of the universe. So David made an investment. David inquired of the Lord, but David was also inspired. Point number three, David was inspired by God, not the enemy. He was inspired by God, not the enemy. He was, he was in awe of God and not, he wasn't impressed by the enemy. Bill Johnson has a great line and he says, I will never live in reaction to the devil. I will always live in response to the father. If I live in reaction to the devil, I have now given him an influence to set my agenda and he is not worthy of such a trait. If you are impressed by the work of the devil, you've just given him a platform of influencing your life. 
We can't do that. We have to live in response from the Father. We cannot be impressed by evil. And David, I love how he, it said he was distressed. He cried. Faith doesn't deny that the problem is real. It just refuses its influence. Faith, you can go through all the emotions of, of humanity. God is an emotional God. Look at the Psalms are filled with emotions, but yet we can't stay there. You can have your pity party for a moment, but don't stay there. Faith does not deny the facts, but it stands on truth and says, I will not be influenced by the enemy. We got to get to a place where we have a backbone and say, hey, this problem is not a surprise to God. And I'm not going to sit here and wonder why me, why poor me, why am I the one going through this? What did I do to deserve it? No, 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 no. If I'm here, that means God trusts me. If I'm here, that means he already has an answer for me. And if I'm here, my job is not to focus on the problem. My, my job is to focus on the presence. And to say, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? To hold on to strength, hold on to everything that he's given to us so that we don't lose it. And I'll close with this as we wind down for communion. I got a dear friend of mine, love her to pieces. And she just got dealt this hand in life that nobody should deserve. She's just a wonderful Christian lady, married to a pastor, two beautiful little girls. And somewhere down the road, the pastor decides, I want to start living a life of sin and get addicted to all this kind of stuff and start spending money that I don't have and eventually just fled to Mexico and left this lady and her two daughters by themselves. All the debt, all the drama, all the legal issues she was left with, with no help, no child support, no nothing, just completely left with everything. And she could have gone bankrupt. She could have sold the property. She could have sued the man. She could have gone to court and she didn't. She continued to take the high road and 10 years later is still paying off his debt at times working two jobs, two jobs to continue to put food on the table and, and live with you know, the bare minimum in life and continue to go with joy and with peace and to serve in her church and to be alongside and partner in ministry. It's, it's incredible. And I remember one time just looking at her and saying, how in the world do you do? I would have shot that dude by now. How did you take the high road? And she gave me the simplest yet most profound answer. She says, I will just never lose what God has given to me. I have my faith. I have my health. I have the joy that he's given to me. I have the scriptures. I have a praying mama who is literally on her knees three hours a day. I won't lose what he's given to me. And I refuse to take the low route. I will always take the high route what God gave to me. That is incredible. And I remember after we closed down our church plant and we were looking at moving uh, to Texas and not even having a job when we moved here. We were homeless, living in a Motel 6 and multiple Motel 6s. And I was sitting at the edge of the bed one day, literally $20 left in my pocket. Zero in the savings, five cents in the checking account, a $20 bill in my pocket. Bills stacked up. We didn't want to open credit cards or do any of that. And I just sat there and I said, okay, Rudy, you can freak out. You could throw a tantrum. You can get angry. You can go look for another job. You could take a credit card out and go into debt. What are you going to do? And I just remember because of, of the testimony of my friend saying she took the, the high road. She trusted God. She wouldn't let go of her faith. I got to do the exact same thing right here. This is my opportunity. This is not my problem. This is my opportunity to trust God and say, this will be a story. I will tell this story out of, out of pulpit one day. I knew that. I said, God, you're going to get us out of this. I have no idea how. I have no idea when, but I know you will. I'm going to focus right now on keeping my heart strengthened. I'm going to focus right now on not losing everything that you have given to me so that I can get to that victory that you have promised for me. I'm not going to forsake it because of my ill intentions. 
So in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we stand here completely forgiven, completely healed, completely delivered, and filled of your mercy, your love, and your joy. I speak blessing to my friends, my family here today. Father, that we would go today not only in your protection, your healing, and in your joy, but that we would go with a confidence in our heart, knowing that you are by our side, knowing that there is no trial too big for you, that nothing is impossible for our God. May we strengthen ourselves this week. May we draw closer in intimacy in your presence. And may we go in your favor today, we declare in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Love you all. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.